0: Walking through God's word here, we've been uh, going through the book of John. We're on a journey through the book of John and seeing God's revelation of himself to us. Light in our darkness. Today's text uh, for the book of John is John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. If you'd like to follow along, we have Bibles underneath the chairs in front of you. Or we have, uh, uh, um, you can use your Bible app on your phone if you don't have your own Bible. If you need a Bible... Just grab the one that's underneath the chair in front of you, around you, and take that home with you. That's yours. Uh, If you don't have a Bible of your of your own, there. As we jump into uh, today's text, here, let me kind of set it up here uh, briefly. Any of you know a man by the name of Tim Tebow? That name come to come to mind there. Tim Tebow. He was a uh, 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 Heisman winner, football player, really, really excellent football player and leader in college football. Uh, But when it came to making that transition to pro, he didn't quite do it so well. He was a great athlete, incredible leader. He loves Jesus like nothing else. Great man of God. But but he didn 't quite have the, the the technical skills and the level to be able to tr- translate college football quarterback into professional football, and so he got passed around from different teams and, and then he eventually just kind of gave up football and uh, tried baseball because he 's an athlete because he 's awesome. Well, he made it to the AAAs. he almost got up there to the, to the kind of the pro level, but again just it 's just not quite. Again, that, that technical skill level to go go full-on pro. Well, his old coach from Florida became the head coach of the Jacksonville Jaguars this year. And, uh, and there was a whole bunch of, uh, uh, of talk behind the scenes of Tim Tebow practicing with the Jacksonville Jaguars. The guy's like 31, 33. He's not exactly in his prime anymore, and all of a sudden, now he's practicing with the pros once again at the position of tight end, all right? For those who don't know football, this is kind of a receiver and a blocker at the same time, so you got to be beefy and big. You can be able to block, but also uh, you got to be able to catch. This is a totally different kind of role than what Tim Tebow's played in the past, and you can imagine there's all kinds of people hating on Tim Tebow, all kinds of people trolling him and, and about why this is a bad idea and he shouldn't be doing this, and how he can't come back at this age and this level. And they're all saying this shouldn't be done. The contract was signed. The burden of proof now is on Tim Tebow. Everybody's asking, show us the evidence. Can he do this? Is he as great an athlete as everybody? As many of the the coaches say he is. Is this going to be good for the team? Where's the proof? We need to see the evidence if we're going to believe in Tim Tebow. As we come to today's passage here, we're talking about somebody a lot greater than Tim Tebow. Praise the Lord. Talking about Jesus. And what John has set out for us in the book, and his gospel... Is to show us evidence. Bring in the evidence. The burden of proof. Jesus isn't just a great guy. He's God. He's not just a guy whose example in his life is worth following. And is a good moral guy. He's God. And we should worship him. We should bow down. We should surrender. We should be fully devoted to him. He's God. Today's passage, we get the first of the many evidences that John puts before us from the life of Jesus. His miracle that he presents for us today or demonstrates for us today is just but a glimpse for us to see and believe he is God. Let's jump right in. John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20, 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now, draw some out, take it to the master of the feast. So they took it out, And when the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from. As though the servants who drawn the water, they knew the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine till now. This is the first of his signs. Jesus did in Canaan, Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, they went up to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. Let's pray as we receive God's word. Holy Spirit, we ask as, as, as you wrote through John with the purpose that we might see and believe in, in, in Jesus, Holy Spirit, we ask, open our eyes. We know that we can't see on our own. And we need you to do the work here and among us. We want to encounter you just as you manifested your glory then, Jesus. We ask you manifest your glory even now. Let us see. Let us see, and God, let us believe. Where where some of us, Lord God, are are, are half in. We're not all, and we haven't trusted you. We intellectually assent to you, Jesus. We 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 intellectually acknowledge that yeah, you are God. You are more than just a good man, Lord Jesus. We have not given our lives. We pray for that full surrender today. We pray for those who have intellectual barriers to believing and trusting you that they would be removed, Lord God, that the questions would be answered, Lord Jesus. Lord God, that they would come to the place of surrendering and trusting because they see and now believe. Jesus, work in our hearts. You are God, and you've given us so much evidence. Let us respond today. In your name we pray, amen. In the previous chapter here in John 1, we're left with Jesus telling his first followers. He just called a few of his followers. He's got five at this point now. And he told the one Nathaniel, you know what? You, you, you're believing because I told you I saw you when, you when there was nobody else around you. And I knew and I could tell you where you were, what you were doing. You thought that was amazing. Amazing. Let me tell you, there's more to come. You're going to see greater things. Last week, we saw that the invitation was come and see. And now John presents to us the first of these cases, these evidences of Jesus and his glory. So we have here on the third day, there was a wedding feast in Cana in Galilee. These wedding feasts uh, among the Jewish culture, and the people could take a week or even more at a time. There is a great feast. They love to party. And in this uh, wedding feast, here, a problem occurred. They ran out of wine. Now, It's believed that Jesus and his disciples were invited because uh, there was a family member likely close to to Mary uh, at this time, which is why Mary kind of takes it on herself, takes a little bit of ownership here uh, when the wine runs out to come to Jesus. Now, this must have been a pretty decent sized wedding in order for Jesus and his disciples to be invited to come along, him and his mantourage. All right? So they've got a, they must have a, be a pretty wealthy group of people to have, such, uh, to have extras come along here. And so we have the issue that the wine runs out. Now, why is this an issue? Why is this an issue? To us today, we, it might, we'd be like, okay, that's fine. We had, we, we had a budget, and we, 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 we set that out for, for the amount of beverages. It's out, it's out. But the, the, we don't fully understand that in Jewish culture, it was a shame-based culture. We, get, we don't quite appreciate that the, there was a loss of face and name and not adequately providing for the guests. You see, it's kind of the equivalent of a promise that they made to the guests that they invited that we will provide everything for you. Okay. And so for them to run out of wine and not can have enough to go through the entire feast would be shame on the family's name. And that would lead to ongoing kinds of social not just awkwardness, but even ostracization. I'm going to get some more coffee here. So the shame-based culture here, and the shame on the name of the family, is a part of the impetus for Mary coming and saying, saying to Jesus, they've run out of wine. They've run out of wine. Now when we come here to this passage and we hear the word wine... There's a bit of history here within evangelicalism that has some kind of uncomfortability when we start talking about alcoholic beverages. All right? We need to get some things very clear here. That our awkwardness and concerns here today are, cannot be imposed on the history and what was happening in that culture in that time. This was not grape juice. There was a different term for juice. This is not that term. It was an alcoholic beverage. The scriptures both celebrate wine as well as provide cautions around it. Because of our sinfulness and our, our, our tendency that we can in our brokenness abuse the good things of God. But just because we are broken does not mean that God prohibits good things that he created for us. So this wine is a real alcoholic beverage. And it was very much a part of regular culture and and part of how people got their water sources because much water was not always as clean as we have water today even. So this is wine. This is real alcoholic beverage, which we'll, we'll see played out later here. The wine ran out. It comes to Jesus. There is no more wine. They have no wine. And Jesus responds to her. Woman. Okay, that seems a little bit awkward, right? From the get-go. I mean, Mary is his mom. You know, she beget him. She birthed him. Now, we know that that was by divine, divine uh, uh, working of God, but she still went through labor. I mean, give her a break, right? Woman. Come on, Jesus. What's going on? going on here? What does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. All right, so there's got to be more going on here, because we know Jesus is a man of integrity and respect. He's God, right? He's not just going to be disrespecting his his mother Mary there. What's going on here? Mary comes to him because she knows he can do something. Now, now, we have up to this point, we have no evidence that, that Jesus did any miracles growing up, all right? He didn't part any, his bathtub, all right? You know what I'm saying? Like, there, 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 there just wasn't any kind of bringing animals to life or, you know, his dog died and he brought it back. There's nothing going on here. There's no evidence that Jesus demonstrated his divine power up to this point right now. But Mary knows that he's the son of God. She knows that he has power and authority. She also knows that her it's likely at this time, Joseph, her husband, had passed away. And Jesus was the man of the house. He was the firstborn. And she had to, had to rely on him as not just Joseph's son, the carpenter, he, a carpenter. He was the carpenter. He'd likely taken over the family business. So she was very much reliant upon him to address issues. So she's coming to Jesus. I, I know you can do something about it. I don't know. I don't have a plan. But I know you can do something about it. Jesus' response to her, instead of saying, mother, he says, woman, what does this have to do with me? This comes out here at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And what Jesus is establishing, because if you look through all the Gospels, as he interacts with his mom, he has instances where, where people say, hey, your mother and brothers are outside. And he explains, no, my these are my mother and brothers here. What Jesus is, is establishing and indicating here is that he has one true allegiance. The woman who birthed him does not have authority over him. There is only one who has authority, and that's his heavenly father. His purpose that Jesus sets out throughout the book of John is I am here to do the will of my Father. Mary does not have any extra special power over Jesus, only God the Father. And Jesus' response in explaining to her, my hour has not yet come. Well, Mary wants him to do something about this and believes that he has the ability to do something, to intervene in some way. Jesus makes a statement, as he always does. People ask Jesus for like a, a very straightforward, practical kinds of question. And Jesus takes it to another level. All right. We're going to see that all throughout the book of John. Jesus takes it to another level. And he says, my hour has not yet come. What's he talking about? Are you, are you only on the clock at 5 and it's like 4.30? I mean, what's going on, Jesus? My hour has not yet come. As John does, he has tightly developed themes as he lays out his gospel. And the language of the hour coming specifically has to do with a very particular event of Jesus' glorification. Throughout the gospel here, in chapters 7 and 8 and other places, we hear these incidences and events and that his hour has not yet come. But we come to John chapter 12, and all of a sudden, very abruptly, we have this statement from Jesus, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. In chapter 13, 1, we get a little bit more uh, deeper into this. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, To depart out of this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world. He loved them to the end. The particular hour of Jesus. His glory. While we may have signs and miracles. That we have in this passage even itself. His glory wasn't as much in these power signs. As much it was in the cross. In his humiliation for us. Which is the whole upside down kingdom that Jesus comes to display for us. His greatness, his power, and his his, his mightiness was in in his lowliness for you and I. He took our sin. He became sin. He was rejected by God. He was punished for our sin. That is the hour of glory. And Jesus clarifying Again, speaking at another level. Mary couldn't even understand and know what Jesus is talking about, which is why John has these included so that we come back after reading it once and we see the layers here again. The depths to which Jesus is speaking. Jesus is saying, You want me to do something, you want me to displace my greatness. You don't even understand my greatness, and when, and how that will be displayed. That, that's not just going to be in me doing this little, this little miracle here. There's something greater coming. It's the cross. I'm going to show you my power at the cross. And so Jesus, his statement here isn't to just cut Mary off. It's not a no. What does this have to do with me? My hour hasn't come yet. He's pointing to there's something so much more beyond this moment that's going to happen. This moment even is pointing to something greater. There's something more happening here. And so his mother said to, his, to the servants, knowing that Jesus had essentially said yes in his cryptic uh, divine language here, tells the guys, do whatever he tells you. I have no clue what's going to happen and how it's going to happen, but you just do what he says. Now, it says here, there were six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. All right, so some of you may have wondered, like, what are these water jugs going on up here? You're probably distracted through the worship service, going, what is going on? Like, what is this up here? What's going on? These are five-gallon water jugs right here, right? I have six of them. This barrel here holds 25 gallons, all right? Now, they had these jars that were for purification, massive, big jars here. And, 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 and these jars, he tells them, fill with water and fill them to the brim. They were 20 to 30 gallons each, all right? This is how big five-gallon jugs are, six of them. You can imagine how much wine that would make, all right? Six of these barrels full of water turned into wine would make 750 bottles of wine. 750, that's just a couple, that's eight ounce glasses of wine, and an 8 ounce glass is a large glass of wine, usually 6 ounces, 2,400 glasses, of this is the end of the feast, pretty sure they didn't need that much wine, Jesus was going a little bit over the top here, he knows how to party, Imagine, six of these beasts here filled with wine. They weren't going to be able to consume that all. The wine must be abundant and overflowing. What he is showing here, I'm not just going to give you a a, a fix the moment here. I'm not just going to do something that people could just kind of easily look over here. The abundance of wine that he makes is to demonstrate that this is a legitimate miracle, that there is something more going on here even. We can't deny what he's accomplished. Not only does he make so much wine, Ridiculous amount of wine, but they take it to the master of the feast. now, the master of the feast here is kind of like a, 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 a like a, a a party manager or a wedding planner kind of person that they were responsible for making sure everybody had their they their, 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 were in the right place at the right time, and things were getting done, and they weren 't responsible for the finances they they weren 't quite a caterer uh, if you will here so but they were just make sure everything kept going and was smooth, so that the bridegroom and, the, and and his family could enjoy the time. The cost was on the bridegroom. Everything else was on the bridegroom. Is responsible for this this party here. And so they take it to the master of the feast. And this is somebody who, who would have already been, you know, making sure all the food was, in, was good and quality and getting out to the people. And you take it to the master of the feast who knows the difference between good wine and bad wine. Some of us don't even know the difference between good wine and bad wine or good coffee and bad wine. coffee. Holders, is not good coffee, just so you know. All right. Just to be clear. All right. Now, I understand for some of you that may work and, you know, God bless you. God bless you. So he takes it to this man, and uh, and of course, as we see here in the in the in the commentary, he doesn't know what he's getting. He just knows he's getting a glass of wine. But but the servants, they know what they just what they just pulled out of the tub here, the big jar. They pulled water. Okay, that's what they know, and they put it in this jug here. They put it in this jug here, and they're and, and they're carrying it out to him to pour it into his chalice, and, and and when he tastes it, it's wine. It's not just wine; it's really good wine. Everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, which means when they're when they're a little bit tipsy, when they're already intoxicated, and their palates are numb and dull we bring out the cheap stuff but you have brought the good wine now wasn't just any wine it was good it was the best it was a custom and economic for economic reasons to start off with the good wine and then because People were slightly inebriated or a little little happy, we'll say, um, to bring out the rest that was cheaper, where people didn't care. It was all purely economic reasons. And so this is to his surprise. And, and you can imagine the servants who are like, what? That was water and now it's wine. Jesus's miracle here at this point was subtle, all right? A big part of Jesus's ministry is that it grows and increases in its public display of his power and his glory. Jesus wanted people to trust in him for his word, that he is the son of God. Not everybody would be able to see these miracles and believe. Now, John, of course, gives them to us all so that we might see and believe. This is the first of his signs, as John records it. Jesus did in Cana and Galilee and manifested his glory. Jesus gives a glimpse here. As, as the slide says, of his glory by miraculously turning water into wine. This isn't some kind of just cheap trick. It isn't some kind of illusion that he goes through. I need a couple volunteers here, who uh, maybe some future scientists. You know, I need a couple couple kiddos to help who are interested, uh, who want to, who, who maybe it, some future scientists up there. Do we have blessing? Did you want to come up? No, no, no. Man, I see people. Claire, you want to come up? Is that okay? All right, Claire, come on up. All right, can I have one more? Just one more. Hey, come on up here. All right. Okay. Parents, I want to assure you, there is no wine on this table. Okay? All right. Ladies. Oh. I need you to um, sample. And we're, only gonna have to, uh, we're not going to share any cups here, so I need you to choose. Two of you choose who you want to want to sample here. Uh, s- s- the, this beverage right here, and, and, and just let me know what you think of that beverage right there. Go ahead. Yeah, you can go ahead and take a, take a sip. Which one of the? Your, go ahead. Yeah. What's that taste like? Water? Tastes like water like water what do you think what does that taste like water. tastes like water okay what do you think do you like water it's pretty good yeah it's pretty good we need more water in our lives right we need to drink that it's good okay i want you to try this is this tell me if it's different than water is it different claire i see you smiling do you, was that better Oh, a, a little bit? A little bit. Not a lot. Was that different than water? Yeah? Yeah? That's grape juice. Yeah. Okay, now, here's the experiment, all right? I've got this pitcher here. All right, we've got, we've got water and grape juice. Now, are they the same thing? No, they're not the same thing. All right, so, I'm, I'm going to give you guys just a moment here, and, the, and, and what I need you to do is you've got this pitcher of water. And I need you to turn it into grape juice. All right. So you got all everything you need for this experiment is right, right here, in that jar. Do you guys need a couple minutes? I can get, keep going and come back. What do you think? Are, are you going to be able to turn this into grape juice? No. Why not? You don't have all the ingredients, do you? You might, might need some grapes, right? To help with turning it into grape juice, right? Yeah, so, so, so there's some missing ingredients. What Jesus did was he changed the chemical composition of water, which is a very simple H2O there. He changed it into something more complex that has all kinds of different chemicals in it in the, the wine, which is a little bit like grape juice. He created something totally new. He created something out of nothing. Now, who can do that? Who can create something out of nothing? God. That's right. Only God. You guys rock. Thank you so much. Appreciate your help. Give these ladies a round of applause here. All that extra effort that I go into here with bringing these, you know, those those cute volunteers up front here to emphasize that what happened, it wasn't just an illusion. There's something profound. You can't merely just change the chemical composition of one beverage, water, into something that has so many different layers of complex chemicals in it for, 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 for ethanols and sugars and acids and, and, and phenols. All these things that are now present. You put something there that wasn't there before only person who can create something out of nothing is God. Now, appreciate what what D.A. Carson says here. There's the miracle of this happening. Jesus takes water and he changes it into wine and he makes a lot of it. And it's really, really good. But there's more going on here. D. Carson says this Jesus' miracles are never simply naked displays of power, or still less neat conjuring tricks to impress the masses uh, as a wedding party, but signs, significant displays of power that point beyond themselves to the deeper realities that could be perceived with the eyes of faith. This is John. Is always trying to point to Jesus is the fulfillment of something of God's purposes long before. And, and, and John is relying on his audience to be Jewish people who knew the Old Testament. And John's always, always showing Jesus is an echo. He's the fulfillment of something that was spoken long ago. And there was prophecy of one who would come, and, 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 and the coming of God that would include the abundance of really good wine. Do you believe that? Let's turn to Isaiah 25. Isaiah 25. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well refined. Notice it mentioned the wine twice for emphasis. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations, that is sin. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Who's that talking about? Jesus. The one we've waited for, and how will He come with a bunt, with a feast, with a party, with not just some wine, but a lot of it, and the best, because there will be a feast in heaven, the marriage feast of the Lamb, our Savior. This was th- seven hundred years prior to Jesus. And he fulfills this in this seemingly just simple and obscure miracle. If we can call any miracle simple, right? But what happens to the disciples here is it ends in verse 11. And his disciples believed in him. They knew there is more going on here. No person can do this. He's not just a great teacher, a man who can command presence. This man, Jesus, is God. And they believed. This being believing means that they were all in. At that moment, this is the conversion of these five men, that they were all in. Not just one foot uh, doing their own thing and one foot uh, trusting Jesus, which a lot of us do, right? All in. Devoted to Jesus. Because they knew He was the one true God. What are we going to do with this? We take this as, oh, it's one of those nice little biblical stories. We're we're tempted to even reduce it, you know. It, it It was this... It it, it, it warms our heart. It's nice. But friends, this is evidence of eternal significance. He is God. C.S. Lewis has a great quote here that puts us in our place as we are presented with evidence, intellectual, factual evidence of who Jesus is. And what are we going to do with this? What are we going to do? C.S. Lewis says this. I'm trying to prevent here anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus and that I'm ready to accept Jesus as a really good moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. This is the one thing we must not say. And I think here's where the quote gets on the screen here. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic. Okay, He's crazy, saying he's God. He's the son of God. All his cryptic language would just be evidence of his delusions, and he needs to be in an asylum. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg. Or else... He would be the devil of hell, the deceiver, to draw people and lying, knowing he's lying, maliciously doing so. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But Let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely as it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and he is God. Where are you at with Jesus? What are you going to do with Jesus? What are you going to do with the evidence? The facts are there. Will you respond? Will you merely stay? Some of us have just merely stayed at an intellectual level. I believe, but you've not given him your heart. He is not your Lord if you've not surrendered. And he's not your Savior unless he's your Lord as well. What are you doing with Jesus? Is he your Lord and Savior? For some of you, this may be the first time you're coming to grips with this place and this decision. And maybe you have some other questions. And I want to invite you. It's okay to ask questions. It's okay to wonder and have doubts. Let's talk this through. But don't. Don't put aside this question of Jesus. This is significant. Not just for what may happen. We talk about afterlife. But it is significant now. For what may happen in your life. Come. Let's talk. Let's pray. Let's walk this through. What are you going to do with Jesus? For those of us, friends, who have come, we have seen, and we do believe, let us worship. Because he's an amazing God. He's a mighty God. I'm going to invite the worship team to come on forward to close us out. Singing along those lines about our God, who is so great. Holy Spirit, we ask... For your grace as you work in our hearts for those of us, Jesus, who have not surrendered, who have not responded by believing, by by by, by giving all in and devoting themselves to you, Jesus, who are who are on the fence, who have intellectually assented, but they still live in for themselves. Lord God, I pray that you would convict and prompt and let them see the error, Lord God, and surrender, Jesus. Lord, those who who Lord God, who have been skeptics, who, who have just been questioning or new to this whole Jesus thing, Lord God, and they have other questions, God, would you continue to draw them? Would you give them peace? Would you, would you show them that you are here with them? Would you draw them out, Lord God, and give them the courage, Lord, to step towards you in faith, though there may be questions that continue to linger? Let them surrender and let them know you, Jesus. Oh, Father, thank you for your goodness. Lord God, let us continue in our wonder as we see signs of you. That If we are willing to believe, we now see all over the place signs of your glory, of your miracles, of your working every day in our lives and throughout our day. Let us worship you because you are worthy. In your name we pray. Amen.